were faced with many threats uh, without and within. They were facing a powerful army that had them surrounded, the army of the Assyrians. Internally, they were at a place of spiritual crisis, many leaving the worship of their God to follow after other gods. And into this, uh, into this story, with each one facing these threats, facing this chaos, trying to figure out where they could look, where they could turn and run for salvation, here's what Micah, uh, the prophet Micah says in Micah chapter 7, verses 7 through 9. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation, and my God will hear me. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light and I shall look upon his vindication. Where do we look for salvation? That's, that's the question that's at the heart of this passage in Micah. Micah's answer is clear. He says, I will look to the Lord for salvation. I'll wait for the God of my salvation. But where do we, where do you, where do I look for salvation? The French philosopher, uh, <clears throat> Luke Ferry, himself an atheist, uh, in his book, A Brief History of Thought, moves through all of the, the different things uh, philosophical and theological movements of Western history from the Greeks all the way through to, to today's postmodern thinkers. And he says this, he says that every human being fundamentally is on a quest for salvation. Every one of us, all of the great thinkers and those of us who don't think particularly deeply, every one of us is seeking after salvation. He says that humanity is unique uh, in, in the creation in all of the world. And that we alone, un unlike the animals, unlike your dog, uh, you are aware of your limitations. You're aware of your physical limitations. You're aware of the fact that one day you will uh, get old and die. You're aware of your moral limitations. We're all aware, aren't we, that there's things that we long to do, people that we long to be that we're just not capable of. We continually uh, fail ourselves and, and fail our best convictions. We're morally frail, and we're physically frail. We're socially frail, right? If 2016 has taught us anything, right, it's how poorly we get along uh, with one another, how deeply divided uh, we can be along political lines, along racial lines, along socioeconomic lines. And so where in a world where we're in need of physical salvation for our dying bodies, moral salvation for our guilty consciences, social salvation for our crumbling world. Where do we turn? Where can we look to find salvation? You know, the good news of Christianity begins with something that doesn't sound like very good news. And it's this, that salvation is beyond your reach. No matter how hard you look, no matter how tirelessly you try, salvation eludes all of us, right? You're never uh, going to be good enough to escape uh, the frailty that you find yourself in, right? You're never going to clean up your act and become moral enough. You're never going to become smart enough to think your way through it. You're never going to be successful enough in your job 
earn enough money uh, to become immortal. Right? None of those things that we attach eternal hope to. Your family is never going to be perfect enough. That salvation slips out of all of our grasp, no matter how hard we seek it. And that doesn't sound like good news at first. Right? But think about this. As long as salvation is in your grasp, as long as salvation is attainable by you, none of us could ever rest until we grabbed it. Right? None of us would ever be able to really rest until we knew that we had been good enough or we had found the right answers, until we had become spiritual enough or prayed long enough or hard enough. Right? We'd all be left with what uh, actually is uh, the last words of Buddha, the, the founder of Buddhism. His last words on his deathbed to his followers was strive without ceasing. Right? Strive without ceasing. If internal peace and tranquility and salvation is your goal, then until you get it, you can only strive without ceasing. Contrasting that, Jesus, uh, whose birth we celebrate today, his last words to his followers where it is finished, right? In Jesus, there comes a salvation that will finally let us rest, right? When you finally admit that salvation isn't something that you can drum up of your, on your own, but that you have to receive as a gift, something that has to come from beyond you to you, then you'll be able to say what Micah says. But as for me, while the world around me toils and looks for a place to, to find salvation, I will look to the Lord, and I will wait for the God of my salvation. Waiting in biblical spirituality uh, is a confident and joyful faith projected into the future. Right? It's not a, well, I hope God comes. It's not a, I hope it all works out in the end. I hope God figures it out. But it's a confidence. It's a faith saying, I know my God. I know his character. And I know that he will come and he will intervene. And so Micah, looking towards the future, says, I will wait with confidence and hope. I will wait for the coming of my God to bring a salvation from beyond us, from beyond me. I'll wait for him. In Israel's story, uh, before Micah and after Micah, is really the long story of a people's waiting. Them waiting through exile, them waiting through their failed return, them waiting through... First a Greek occupation and then a Roman occupation. It's them waiting for their God to break in and to bring salvation. And when it came, when God finally did enter in with salvation, it looked so different than anyone expected. It looked so humble. It looked so meek. It looked so seemingly insignificant uh, that most people missed it. That most people missed God the eternal God, born in a manger to an unwed mother in an out-of-the-way place in a distant province of the Roman Empire, that that's the place in an actual baby, in an actual person, that God would enter into history. I read uh, recently in an interview with Bono, uh, the lead singer of U2, in, ca in case anybody knows more than one Bono, he was uh, back home in Ireland uh, after a world tour, and he was exhausted. He was spiritually spent. He was worn out, because it's apparently very hard being Bono. And he found himself in a little church in Ireland for a Christmas Eve service, uh, not unlike this one. 
And with his tired and and, uh, distant heart, he reflected on this. This is what struck him in that Christmas Eve service. The idea that God, if there is a force of love and logic in the universe, that it would seek to explain itself is amazing enough. That it would seek to explain itself by becoming a child born in poverty and straw. A child. I just thought, wow just the poetry of it. I saw the genius of picking a particular point in time and deciding to turn on this. Love needs to find a form. Intimacy needs to be whispered. Love has to become an action or something concrete. It would have to happen. There must be an incarnation. Love must be made flesh. Right, it's easy to, for us to think, if we think at all of God, Uh, To think of himself as a benign and loving force behind the universe. Uh, Most of us, I think, tend to think of God as far removed and distant, but in general, kind and well-wishing towards his people. And yet what Bono is saying is this, is that if, if God is really loving, if God is loving, then he would have to, in love, first seek to explain himself. That's what we have. That's what we believe we have in the Bible, is the speech of a God who wants to be known by humanity. And then one step more, that love has to be incarnate. That if God is love, it wouldn't be loving of him to stand at a distance from his creation. But that love has to enter in, and if love was to enter in, it would have had to pick a place in time, a place in history, one person, one tiny spot, a stable in Bethlehem, to penetrate this world with the hope of making his infinite and eternal love tangible, invisible, and knowable, demonstrable uh, to human beings. That if love is true and if God is love, it had to become flesh. It had to become incarnate. You know, I think that uh, this was as shocking then as it is now. Just as most of Jesus' contemporaries, most of the wider Roman world and the Jewish world, walked past the baby in the manger, overlooked it, never imagining that this is the shape that salvation would take. I think that we still uh, are shocked by it. I think for many of us, it offends our sensibilities. You know, I think as I talk with my neighbors and my friends, I think that it's ultimately not the spirituality of Christianity that bothers us, but it's the physicality of it that's troubling. Right, if Christianity was just another message saying, well, God is loving, and he's out there somewhere, and yeah, he made us, but he kind of stands off at a distance. And Jesus was a teacher. He was another teacher telling people about how they could find a spirituality, how they could connect with God. Then Christianity, I don't think, would would trouble us that much. It wouldn't be that hard for us to get on board with it. But because of the fact that Christianity claims more than that, it's not just a spirituality, but it becomes physical. Right, It's the virgin birth that God himself would come upon Mary and bring a child, a a literal baby that cried, that had to be potty trained, that had to grow up from a baby to adulthood, including all of the awkward phases in between. Right, The physicality of it, the fact that in this body that we believe Jesus assumed, that we believe that Jesus came in, that that body uh, was tempted, in every way exactly as we are, that he knew temptation, that that body 
touched and embraced the people that he lived with, that he touched people and they would actually be made well, that the, the miracles were physical, that in that body, that body would be broken on the cross, dying on our behalf, that that body would be laid in the grave and three days later risen again to new life, that the, that the resurrection itself wouldn't be merely spiritual, merely a, an idea about the, the victory of life over death, but that it would be an actual physical birth and death and resurrection. That it's that part of it that makes it hard to believe for us. Really hard to believe that Christianity became, became physical in the man Jesus Christ. But it had to be so, and that's what we celebrate at Christmas. That if God had kept his distance, we'd be lost. If God hadn't entered in with his life and his light into our world of darkness, we'd be without hope. Look at the way that Micah describes the salvation that God brings into the world. It's all of these images that when I fall, I'll rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. Though I sin, though I'm guilty, he will plead my cause. He will bring me out of the light, into the light, and I will look upon his vindication. Right, Micah says that, yes, I am a sinner, right? Left to myself, I stand before God guilty, condemned, unable to be before him. Right, my moral failings aren't just failings of my own conscience, but they're failings against a holy God. And yet he says, the gift that will come in God's salvation is this. That God will bring me out of darkness into light. Right? This is an image of all of our shame being stripped away. All of that feeling that we have that we are unlovable, that we are broken and that we are flawed, and that if we were to stand before someone holy and righteous, that we'd be exposed and need to cover up. Right? It's that feeling of shame that sometimes even hides us. Uh, in our most intimate human relationships, those things that say, say to us, if people really knew who I was, if they really knew the dark secrets of my life and my hidden habits, if they really knew me, they'd never want me, they'd never love me, so I have to hide. God says, I'll bring you out into the light. And instead of shame, you'll feel love. Instead of the desire to hide, you'll feel my embrace. I'll bring you out into the light of God's knowledge, and he will see you. And I will look upon the vindication of God, right? Vindication, that I'll stand before him not guilty, that he'll not only take care of my shame, but that he'll also take care of my guilt. All of those ways that I've broken his law and his commandments, every, every one of the, the checklist of failings that I know my life to be consisting of, God will vindicate me. The word that, that Paul in the New Testament uses is justify that God will strike all of those things from my record. It's like I'll be innocent before him. That me is broken and as limited and as frail as I am, as guilty as I am, that I can be restored to God and restored to myself. That's the gift of God that we celebrate at Christmas. That's what we believe is broken into our lives and become available uh, to each and every one of us. You know, the amazing thing about these verses is it really could be taken as a prayer on the lips of Jesus, right? Jesus knew what it was like to fall and to trust God to raise him up. He knew what it was like to sit in darkness and trust God to bring him into light. He knew what it was like uh, to, be, to sleep 
in the darkness of death, only to have God bring him into the light of his own vindication. Right? Christianity uh, is the belief that when we place our faith in Jesus, we become one with him. What's true of him becomes true of us. That we can taste his new life. That we can taste his death to sin and his resurrection into new life. Have you experienced Jesus in that way? Have you found your life and your meaning and your hope in him? Have you said that I need to be a part of who Jesus is and what he's, what he's achieved, not just for himself, but on my behalf. If not, uh, there's no better time than Christmas uh, to receive the gift of God, right? The, John tells us that God so loved the world that he gave, that he gave his only begotten son. No matter how many incredibly wonderful, thoughtful gifts you receive tomorrow, uh, you will never receive a gift as precious and as powerful, is the gift of the Father who loves you, who sent his Son that you could live life with him. If you've never received that gift, would you do so tonight? If you have received that gift, if that's a gift that by faith you've joined yourself to, tonight let's pray. Let's pray that God would make us grateful. Let's pray that God would stir in us again our first love, the thrill of hope, that we received when we first joined ourselves to Christ. Let's pray.